Hey folks, my name is Infinite and for almost a decade I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. Many years ago, one of my favorite community organizers of all time, Bob Moses, warned that in our country we've been running a sharecropper education, meaning that the education we usually wind up receiving in our public schools is largely predetermined and based on the family we're born into. And if we carry that forward into the information age, then we'll have serfs in our towns and cities, just like we had serfs in the Delta, Mississippi during the industrial era. This is the huge challenge facing our country, he said. This prophecy by Bob Moses is now upon us. Welcome to Back to Freedom School, a deeper dive into education equity in the state of Vermont where we'll be discussing issues like school funding, literacy, labor, community schools, and the various ways that white supremacy culture shows up as one of the root problems in our public education system. Thank you for listening. Hi, Lydia. Welcome to the program. Thank you. How are you doing, Infinite? I'm all right. Uh, we got a little bit of sun left before winter really takes a grip, right? And there's no preparing for it. That's right. So please tell us who you are, where you grew up, and a little bit about how you got to Vermont. So I'm Lydia Christina Diamond, born in Brooklyn, New York. I like to say I'm a hell-raising baby because I was born in 63. And it was a crazy time, you know, in 63. It's actually the year JFK was assassinated, unfortunately. Yeah. I am 58 years old. I have four adult children, three boys and a girl. And I have six beautiful grandchildren, three boys and three girls. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, We lived, I think, I want to say at every corner of Brooklyn, uh, except for like Sheepshead Bay, Bay Ridge, you know, those is more so white neighborhoods. I've been in the state of Vermont 25 years. Wow. Yeah, almost half my life. So I have to admit, I'm officially a Vermonter. Mm -hmm. Don't tell nobody else. When I was a kid in Brooklyn, I was part of that group of children fed by the Black Panther Party. Hmm. And, you know, I take pride in that because that still goes on today, mm-hmm. you know, helping to feed children breakfast, you know, it's the most important meal of the day. And even when I got to elementary school and the Black Panthers fed us. It was still a revolutionary time. What's his name? James Brown song. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember that being like a anthem for us as a kid. Mm-hmm. Growing up in Brooklyn was hard. And why I say hard is because it's so many people in that one borough. And one of the things that I was never comfortable with was, you know, how you live on top of one another, basically. So 
when I came to Vermont, I struggled to adapt here. Whereas my children adapted immediately. I was upset with them like, really? Y'all like it here? But for me as an adult, it was too cold, too quiet, and too white. Mm-hmm. And I struggled. One uh, other reason why I came here was because I was uh, struggling with addiction, mm-hmm. crack cocaine addiction, which I personally think was worse than the opioid crisis, but they're so different because of who is being helped, who's being talked about, who's dying, who's addicted. So that's how I I came here. My mom was the first one to come here. She came here for a two-week visit. A friend of hers lived here, Miss Cat. And after that two-week visit, she came back to Brooklyn and said, I'm moving to Vermont. Mm. And she did. But she had my children, custody of my children at the time. So that's how I followed. We've been here since 94, 95. All six of my grandchildren are born here. We have an entire new generation born in the state of Vermont. I have a lot of family here. You so you're you've been here for a long time. You've been involved in a lot of work. I've you know known you somewhat. Um, I'm, we we met before there was a lot of work being done around racial justice activism and organizing. And so I'm curious, uh, you know, about that work and uh, you know how that work has changed over time in, in terms of racial justice work. What was your experience like in that work before Black Lives Matter existed? Well, that's a great question. A film comes to mind that came out recently, uh, debut director Regina King. Uh, mm-hmm. The name of the film is One Night in Miami. Mm -hmm. And it's Muhammad Ali, or before he was Muhammad Ali, it's Malcolm X, Jim Brown, who I learned so much about that I, you know, I'm not into the football and whatnot. And then there was, what's his name? He sings, Sam Cooke. Mm -hmm. My point is that this film showed how Black people advocated for Black people before they even knew what the word advocating means. Mm -hmm. I had to learn to advocate for myself when I got here. And how my very first lesson was my very first apartment after getting my children back. So when I moved from that first apartment, going to a bigger and more beautiful place, the land, my landlord said to me, uh, Lydia, you didn't pay a security deposit of $750. So I said, that's not true. And I can prove it. It said so in my lease, I paid a $750 deposit, but he didn't want to return my money. And I read the laws and it said that I, if he didn't return my security deposit in 30 days, I could sue him for double and court costs. Mm. And so that's what I ended up doing, mm-hmm. suing him for double and court costs. And I won. Mm -hmm. 
thank God I won. Because this man, you know, he looked at me as if I was just this dumb black girl from New York who probably didn't know no better. But what he found out was I could read. Mm-hmm. After that, we, me and uh, my two youngest ones, we moved to a bigger, better place right on Pearl Street in Burlington. Brandon had been spit on and called a nigga in school. Mm. And the principal at the time, at John J. Flynn said that in order to call it racial harassment, it would have to happen three times. Uh, And she was wrong. There was a learning lesson for all involved, you know, because for me, the principal saying that showed how ignorant she was to her position of being responsible for all these children, but she had no clue what to do with this racial incident. So, you know, a big group of community, school, workplace folks got together and I actually led the group by creating AWARE. It's A-W-A-R-E and it stands for a work against racism everywhere. Mm. Which brings me back to, you know, when I first was born. Um, I was born in 63, but the Civil Rights Act wasn't enacted into law until 64. Mm. So, you know, I say that because, oh, when I was born, we didn't have the right to vote, you know, and that's like a, a, a learning lesson for my children as far as Um, voting goes in Black history, as far as a work against racism everywhere, those small lessons can take you a long way. Yeah. And so what was that work like with AWARE? It was hectic, infinite. It was hectic because maybe because it was such a large group of people, but some people, you knew that they had your back, that they were your ally. But then there were other people who was going to fight you tooth and nail and never agree with anything, just want to disrupt, just disrupt, cause confliction. But there are people who really do want to work towards change. Mm -hmm. And those are the people I seek out and want to collaborate with and and, uh, helping our people to grow, you know, to learn how to do better to do good um, so that they can be happy and successful in life and not concentrating on, you know, stupidness. It wasn't a job that I would have selected for myself. Mm -hmm. It was a job. It's a job that selected me. I see. And so now today, do you feel like you have a role to play in your grandchildren's education. What do you see as your role as, as, as a grandmother in your, in your grandchildren's education? You know, AWARE is about dismantling racism, especially in our schools, because racial harassment is traumatic. It's, it's not like a, you fall and scrape your knee and heal up and you're okay. You know, racism is you fall and break your knee and 
you have pain on a daily basis for the rest of your life. It can be, you know, a, a small ache. It could be a, a migraine, but that's what racism is like in America. Yeah. And we all have to take responsibility on dismantling it. Mm-hmm. And how and how do you see that happening? Through education, because nobody's born, you know, a hater or born uh, uh, racist. I truly believe it's a learned behavior. But it's it's generational hate that that's so highlighted, you know, today. Um, it's like the wheel keeps going round and round and we can't get off. Mm-hmm. Racism it manifests itself in so many different areas, in so many different ways. Look how they done cloned the name Karen and she's so popular now because that's that white lady who called the police on you for tying your shoe in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Racism is, is, is subtle here in Vermont. It's like you're born into the world. You first start learning at home. If you are toxic white, you train in your children to hate from day one. And then they train in their children to hate from day one. And it just goes on and on. And that's how it's generational. Yeah. I'm always, always advocating against racial harassment in our schools because it's generational for me. Mm-hmm. When I went to high school, okay, elementary and middle school, I went in my community with my friends. High school, they forced us to take a bus and a train to the white neighborhoods for, for high school. And them white kids, their parents told them to take us out by any means necessary. They used to chase us to the bus, chase us to the train, beat us. They'd have bats and chains. But, you know, that was my experience. And then my youngest son being spit on and called a nigga, aware was born from that. And just this year, even with COVID, there's still racial harassment in our schools. And the same way you learn to be disliked or you know, mistreat people based on the color of their skin, you can unlearn that. Mm-hmm. You understand? Because it's wrong. Yeah. It's wrong and it's not necessary. It's a choice. You don't have to be like your parents or your grandparents. You can choose to be better, to do more to encourage the celebration of difference, mm-hmm. not continue to tear each other down over it. Pointless. I hear you. And, and so is that, I just want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly in terms of your role in your grandchildren's life as, as they are navigating through uh, you know, racist school system, whether it's um, explicit or implicit, mm-hmm. uh, it, I'm hearing you say that part of your role is uh, to educate people around um, anti-racism. Absolutely. And that includes my family. You know, my son was recently beat up by four white people. 
Yet he was the one who got a citation and arrived to the uh, hospital by ambulance, a tetanus shot, five stitches. The system is broke and we need to trash it and start over. Any ideas of what that might look like? If, if, you, if you had a magic wand, what changes would you wave into existence to improve our, our public school system in particular? First thing first, no judgment. Stop judging each other. And when people are genuine about doing the right thing and loving each other, we can do anything. The school system is broken like the criminal justice system in this country. The country, the foundation is hatred. We can dig all that mess up and incinerate it so it never comes back. But my grandchildren are, uh, I have four of them. Well, Brooklyn is black, white, and indigenous. And then my other three grandchildren are biracial. That the moms are white, my sons are black. And so now there's new uh, lesson there because I'm the matriarch. And my responsibility is to continue to educate from within the home as well as outside the home. My grandchildren, I'm their Black history. I'm their Black history like their parents, you know, and it's not just uh, Black history now. It's BIPOC history. You know, I'm trying to get used to that new term, Black Indigenous people of color, BIPOC history. You know, like my oldest grandson is, is 16. And he, he, you know, he asked me once, Nana, why Lee look white, his cousin? I said, well, her mom's white. And she just looks more like her mom than her dad. <laughs> but if, you're, if your child's not comfortable enough to have you know, these awkward conversations, then you're not helping them to grow and right. to make good, healthy decisions for themselves. Yeah. So that's, that's my role. You also just uh, recently uh, accepted BIPOC community organizer position. I sure did. I'm excited. I was um, accepted for the BIPOC community organizer position. And it's all about not just social justice, but environmental justice as well. Mm-hmm. Like, if you paying attention to, I mean, there's a lot of horror stories about not being able to get cars if folks want to buy cars. But I feel like there's already been a decision made that we're going from gas to electric. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there hasn't been a conversation but the decision has already been made that by a certain year, all cars will be electric. Climate change, there's just just so much justice denied us. Do we not get in another planet? So if we don't take care of this one, we screwed. And we got plenty of that going on. Yeah. And so is that what this uh, community organizer position is about? Yes. And I'm also planning 
for Black History Month upcoming for 2022, mm-hmm. that I want to celebrate Black women. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Black family here in the state of Vermont called the Clemens Family Farm. I like to celebrate them as well. They provided this community with so much history and so much love and so much. They are the epitome of survivorship. They've been here all my life. Mm-hmm. Through the, the BIPOC community organizer, I have uh, work to do regarding racial harassment in our schools, um, environmental justice. And I am hoping to collaborate to have this grandiose Black History Month celebration. Okay, <laughs> that's that sounds exciting. Yeah, and, I ain't mentioning Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's, none of them holidays, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so and so, tell me um a little bit about your your work with the People's Kitchen. Now, that's my pride and joy. Uh, and and my my work with the People's Kitchen is my pride and joy because it it's the most rewarding mm. to be able to help others, feed others, uh, serve others, listen to others. Um, You know, I'm learning, I've been insulin dependent because of type two diabetes since 2014. Mm. For the first time, not too long ago, my A1C was actually a 7.7, which Mm. is phenomenal. It means that I'm, I'm eating better. My taste buds are working right, mm-hmm. you know. But anybody who is a type two diabetic will tell you to get your A one C below what the doctors normally look for is is a celebration within itself. Mm-hmm. So through the people's kitchen, I've learned how to eat better, you mm-hmm. know, to diet better. Less sugar is always great. I don't care who you are. But I've also learned a sense of community, a renewed sense of community, um, interacting with people, just people, hungry people, homeless people, um, being on the front lines of the the movement in in Battery Park. That was phenomenal, Mm -hmm. you know, because you've got all these different walks of life together, united to advocate for better policing Mm -hmm. in the community. The the community, we always want to be able to feed folks whether they can afford it or not, you know, but we are a mutual aid group, not a charity group. And mutual aid means that even if you can't, you don't have the ability to pay, you, you can um, volunteer for an hour. So it's not always about uh, charity. Right. It's more so about give and take. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in a broader sense, what do you see as some of the challenges and opportunities in Vermont schools in particular as we move through this COVID thing, as we face you know, challenges around, you know, uh, how to deal with racial equity. Uh, what are some opportunities or what are some uh, challenges that you think 
we should be thinking about as we move uh, through these unprecedented times, right? Well, the challenge of COVID is a challenge within itself, you know, but we've learned that we have to mask up and sanitize, you know, that's become part of the norm now. It's not something that's going away. Mm. Um, so that's a good thing. But uh, um, what's not good is that the, the numbers are so high on a daily basis. You know, the, there was a huge focus to hit 80% vaccinated, you know, not long ago. But even with that, people are still dying, mm -hmm. you know. And so COVID has taken a lot of uh, resources and focus away from people who like you can't see your doctor for three months you know your asthma doctor because the hospital's overwhelmed mm -hmm. or there's a nurse shortage i feel like we have to start having like a backup plan so to speak mm -hmm. you know your backup plan gotta have a backup plan mm -hmm. but when it comes to the school system I think that it needs um, something completely new, not the same old wheel. You know, like when it comes to culture, if you only have a little bit of culture in, in your school system, then you have to take what you have and make it grandiose mm -hmm. in order to reach the hearts and minds of folks who need to see this is for the greater good, or having these three uh, protocols to respond to a, a, a one child calling another something derogatory. Here's what you do. These three simple steps can cover, you know, so much, you know, because no child should ever hear from an adult who's responsible for so many, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm or something ridiculous like, oh, your son gotta be spit on and called a nigga three times in order to call it racial harassment, which is ridiculous, Yeah, you know? So any uh, final thoughts or words of wisdom in terms of opportunities and what you'd like to see? One of the things that I love about being a part of the People's Kitchen is that I feel like I'm a part of something greater than myself. Um, it's, it's not about me. It's about me doing something good for somebody else or for a, a, a child who needs a coat or picking up from school or diapers, which is something that is a mutual aid thing that we do through the people's kitchen. I've met so many, like the Somali girls, Oh my goodness, they are great people. You know, it's what's, what's sad is that when people come here from other countries, people who look like us, they told we the villains. Don't conversate or don't uh, try to get to know them. Stay away from them, they're dangerous. And that's a lot. Yeah. We've been in this country our whole lives just trying to maintain or succeed or make a difference but we not always, you know, it's not always recognized as such. Yeah. If uh, people are curious about 
uh, they want to learn more about the People's Kitchen and 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 how they might be able to help, where where should they go? Uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. You probably know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that know us. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and if there's a need and we able, you got it. Okay. That's that's all I have. If you don't have it, if we need no final thoughts, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and uh, maybe we can do this again. Sounds good to me. And I appreciate you, good brother. I truly do. <laughs> Thank you, Lydia. All right. Later. All right. Take care. Thanks again for joining us. If you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions about anything you heard, please feel free to reach out. You can contact me at infinite at You can also visit our website to learn more about our work at voicesforvtkids.org. Org. Shout out to Mike Device with the Thomas Instrumentals and Athena with all the technical support.